0: Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything foreign policy has to offer.
1: Hello, and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Politicians, scientists, specialists, and even philosophers frequently claim to be right. They profess to have an understanding of how things ultimately are, yet at the same time know this can't plausibly be the case. So should we give up the idea that it is possible to be definitively right? Or is that possibility essential to progress and culture? Joining us to debate the idea of certainty, our author of Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts, Santiago Zabala, pragmatist epistemologist Corny Besson, an expert of Indian thought. Chakravati Ram Prasad. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iai.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Rana Mitter.
2: Hello. In the history of humankind, there's no theory that's been shown to be definitive, no claim that cannot be disputed. Nor can we imagine a time when such a dispute will come to an end. So should we give up the very idea that it's possible to be definitively right? Would this usher in the new age of compromise? Or is the possibility of being right essential to progress and culture without which we risk violence and conflict? Big issues, particularly for a bright, and I must say, sunny morning, at least here in the UK where I'm speaking to you from. Let me introduce you to our fantastically expert panel who are going to debate these issues. First of all, we have Santiago Zavala, who is ICREA Research Professor of Philosophy at the Pompeo Fabra University in Barcelona in Spain. He's the author of Being at Large, Freedom in the Age of Alternative Facts, and he's made important contributions to the issues of environmental destruction, social inequality, and the dangers of right wing populism. Uh, and then we have uh, Corinne Besson. She is a leading philosopher in the areas of epistemology, the philosophy of logic. And the philosophy of language and she's based at the university of sussex in the uk her most recent work aims to use philosophical realism and apply it to contemporary debates and she's currently writing a book for oxford university press titled logic reasoning and the tortoise and Chakravarti Ramprasad is one of the world's leading philosophers in the field of comparative philosophy. He's helped to make clear the similarities and disparities between Western philosophy and Eastern religion. So three immensely expert speakers today, and I'm going to ask each of them to give us three minutes on a tough, quite starkly phrased question, and then we'll move into what I'm sure is going to be a very lively debate, after which we'll turn to you, our audience around the world, to help enrich that debate. So our first question is, is it possible to be definitively right? And to give us a take on that question, I'm delighted to call on Santiago Zabala. Santiago,
3: over to you. Thank you very much. Well, is it possible to be definitely right? Uh, no, I don't think it is. And uh, and a good theory, a good philosophy, would be one that uh, acknowledges that fact. In other words, that leaves is flexible enough, or some uh, it's, it's post metaphysical enough in order to allow uh, the this, this change to happen. In other words, if we understand that knowledge is not simply an accumulation, uh, it's not simply an accumulation of knowledge. In other words, philosophy is not simply an accumulation of knowledge, but rather, as Richard Royty explained very well, and actually before him, Thomas Kuhn, um, no, it has more to do with edification. In other words, it is not that we have uh, correct more more correct theories we just have better theories that change through the course of history so uh, I think it if uh, I and even this same theory which is basically what um, pragmatics and uh, and hermeneutic philosophy deal with it's not the man it's not it does not pretend to be the, the ultimate right position on the contrary it is just uh, and its it just a form to consider your own theory as part of a very long conversation which again it is not uh, it is not aimed toward truth, but rather towards an accumulation, um, an accumulation of different interpretation, of different uh, views, and basically it's an idea to overcome, once for all, uh, the God's eye view.
2: Santiago, thank you very much indeed for a statement both made with conciseness and with great clarity. Is it possible to be definitely right? Santiago says no. Corinne Besson, do you agree? Corinne
4: Besson says yes. Um, Thank you uh, for having me on this debate. I'm very happy to be here. So um, I think, you know, I want to say yes, but I think it depends a little bit on how we take the question. So, you know, one one question is, you know, can we all agree about something? Can we, you know, can we all converge on a claim or a theory? Um, And the answer to that is probably no, at least I can't see it coming. Um, But, you know, you can take the question as concerning, uh, the question whether, in fact, bracketing uh, agreement or disagreement, it is possible for a claim or a theory to be right, um, and I think it's definitely possible for uh, a claim or a theory to be right, even in light of possible disagreement. Uh, for instance, you know, either there is man-made climate change or there isn't. Uh, if I say there isn't, and you say there is. Uh, one of us uh, is wrong and one of us is right. You know, either the universe is expanding or it's not expanding. You know, if you think it's expanding and I think it's not expanding, then one of us is right and the other is uh, wrong. So and you know and so forth uh, for many other kind of substantive claims like that. So I think you can definitely be right about these things. Um, Now, maybe it is hard for you to know that you're right about these things, or maybe it's hard to arrive at a consensus that you're right, because it's hard for you to, you know, establish uh, that you're you're right. That's another question, but that doesn't mean that you can't, in fact, be right, even if you're acting that you're right, or you can't convince your opponent that you're right. Now, consensus or reaching an agreement, you know, is, is a difficult matter. Even for fairly established theories or views, such as, uh, man-made climate change. There will be always someone uh, who disagrees, and obviously, if it's the you know person at the bus stop uh, who disagrees with you, maybe you could, you can say, "Well, I don't care." But if it's a peer or an expert, uh, then you know you do uh, have to care. Um, so disagreement is difficult. You know, we disagree. You know, because we come at questions from different perspectives or with different skills or outlooks or backgrounds. But I think we, we also disagree, and that's really a feature, especially of you know, philosophical uh, thinking, because it's very often very difficult to show that something is right. So you might be right, but you know, it's hard to establish beyond that that you are right about uh, something. Uh, and when whenever there is room, uh, you know, for doubt, there is room for disagreement. But I don't think that disagreement should uh, make us doubt that there is indeed the possibility, the possibility of being right. And uh, perhaps we're working with too high thresholds of evidence or proof uh, when we demand that, you know, we uh, show that we are definitely right. Maybe we should aim for something uh, uh, less ambitious than the sort of absolute certainty.
2: Thanks very much indeed, uh, Corinne, and I think I, I agree with you about disagreement, but I don't know if that's helpful or not in this uh, in this context. Before we, get back, before we get back to those reasoned agreements and disagreements uh, in our debate, let me turn to Ram. Ram, the key question here again is, is it possible to be definitively right? Okay,
5: <clears throat> so I, I do think that uh, Corinne has raised some questions about... Um, Issues of evidence and the thresholds for evidence, as well as what constitutes agreement or consensus. And I'm sure that we'll be talking more about that uh, in, in, in this panel. To go back to the original question about truth, I've often felt that perhaps from a particular uh, Indian perspective uh, of the philosophical traditions of uh, the religion of Jainism, that we too easily um, depend upon. Whichever side we are on, are there truths that we can find and are there not? We too easily depend upon, I think, two types of ideas about the nature of truth. And i label them without any uh, relationship to how others have used these words, foundational and monotonic. What I mean by foundational v- views of truth is that you start with a set of statements that you think are as true as anybody is going to be able to agree on. So a molecule of water, you might say, really requires two atoms of hydrogen and one of oxygen, and no amount of deconstruction or interpretation can get around that. So if you're going to have that kind of set of truths, then you build, you scaffold other types of truths in relation to the standards required for this kind of truth. So it becomes foundational. Another kind that I'm just off the top of my head calling monotonic is not necessarily to think about the metaphysical foundations of what constitutes the most uh, uh, sort of inescapable kinds of truth, but rather to say that if we do have some kind of a coherence um, of of theory of truth, then that same kind of set of requirements as to how you go about it, how you reason to it, how you arrive at something, how you demonstrate it, and what the plausible rhetorics around it are, are the same in different kinds of fields. In contrast, the Jains had, with reference to the foundational uh, approach, something that roughly is called many-sidedness, So they had a very difficult and challenging notion that perhaps reality itself is irreducibly multiple, that there are some kinds of ways in which there could be a a way of arriving at types of truths which are incompatible with, uh, with each other. I'm not necessarily defending it, but that is the kind of route down which they went. To me, the more interesting one is their response to this notion of monotonic uh, monotonicity, you might say, and that roughly uh, translates as a theory of conditionals. So they basically said that it's very difficult to migrate from one contextual um, kind of area in which you go about trying to find the truth and agree on what the, the, the means of arriving at it are and another it all depends upon the conditionals w- within which you wrap those kinds of agreements. So if you see it in that way, it's not so much that you are saying that truths are constructed or that it is relative or it's always theory dependent, nor are you saying that we, we have to start with a commitment to certain kinds of fundamental truths and ways of arriving at them, and everything else is about whether we are able to uh, convince people or not, whether we have sufficient evidence for it or not, and so forth. Rather, we must be able to return to each particular context and find perhaps that there are some which are irreducibly um, sort of uh, incompatible and we need to turn the, or, or recontextualize
2: our framing. Um, thank you very much indeed for a whole range of very stimulating thoughts there in fact from all three of our speakers what I'd like to do is to move into a debate where I hope that we can throw some of these ideas up against each other if we could stick with this idea of what it means for a theory to be right and you've given us you know a range of, of ways of thinking about this just uh, uh, just uh, just now is there something that's very kind of culturally grounded in terms of the idea of rightness in, in the first place. You mentioned briefly the idea of Jainism and religions, and I have to say the idea of, you know, multi-polarity or multi you or know, multi-layeredness strikes me in some ways like some of the theories of the universe in which actually we don't have one reality but multiverses that operate at the same time depending which, you know, reality you're, you're, you're in. So is that sense of multiplicity helpful in terms of moving us away from the idea that there is one sort of objective reality, or is that not the purpose of that that way of thinking?
5: Well, I think the Jains themselves thought that they were paradoxically giving a view of reality as multiple, so they wanted to be able to, they were addressing um, this very uh, disputatious and highly pluralistic context of classical India, where because there wasn't one text, that people could agree on, there wasn't sort of one set of doctrines that people uh, d- uh, sort of rec- were were required to interpret. They <clears throat> were trying to find how could you have a framework in which you are um, epistemically accessible to the other person. How is it that we don't seem to be able to agree century after century upon anything? How are you going to reconcile these features? So. Their view was to say, well, perhaps it's because the world, this world in which we live, can contain incompatible truths. Now, I think that works perhaps better as a kind of a, 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 a a justification for the nature of human psychology that we're simultaneously committed to the search for truth and at the same time baffled by the fact that we don't seem to be able to agree on too many things. Whether that then can become a program for people to be able to engage with each other, I think that's going to require certain other kinds of intellectual virtues, which are not really about the truth but the nature of our engagement with each other. And I rather suspect that some of our, both Santiago and Corinne, might, might want to say more about the way in which the conditions of agreement have a bearing on what we accept to be the problem about truth.
2: Okay, thanks very much. And just to say one thing, Raman, I'm not going to come back to you on this, so I want to bring the others in, but just to say in terms of the definition working today, you, you very neatly, if I may say, elided us from the question of whether things are right, which is what the debate's about, to whether they're true. Now, obviously, there can be a confluence between the two. But of course, there is at the very least a sort of moral freight on rightness, potentially, that uh, uh, I think we do need to tease apart a bit. of it. I'm going to turn, if I may, back to Santiago to, to do that, because if we look at this question of whether you can definitively say whether something is right rather than whether it's true, the two are not incompatible. But it's not actually quite the same question, is it?
3: Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think it's. I'm right, I important... may be true as well. <laughs> yeah, you're right, you're true, but only among each other. In other words, uh, the, here the, the question here is that truth is really a result of our social agreement we, we, we decide upon ourselves. Because uh, if we look, for example, at uh, climate change, which is a very good example, uh, Bruno Latour, who is a very important philosopher of science, uh, pointed out in his last book that, well, facts alone, Truth alone, right alone does not work. It doesn't, it's not to sustain. Uh, that's a problem with fake news and all that. So truth truth alone is, we're not gonna do anything with that. He explains in the book that it's called Down to Earth in English, uh, that well, you need institutions, you need established newspapers, you need academics, you need a whole range of, you need a whole establishment in some way, although we shouldn't use the word perhaps establishment, in order to sustain truth, being right or facts. So I think it's very important um, to to take into consideration that well, uh, truth in in some way, it's basically what our our contemporaries let us get away with in some way. So basically what we (laughs) all agree upon in some way. Um, This is why I think that it's, it's important to point, just one more thing, it's important to point out that fundamental values are not the result of a historical development toward truth, but rather an agreement among social communities. Uh, this explains why the history of science is not a perfect unilineal uh, history. And by the way, why, but why, why, why are we, why are we philosophers going against this? Why are we saying this thing? Well, a lot of people think, well, it's because, because of some theoretical reasons, some, some knowledge we achieved. No, on the contrary, it's more for an ethical, uh, justification. In other words, if we look, for example, someone who explained this very well, it's Baumann. Zygmunt Baumann pointed out very clearly that the problem with this huge rational, western rational um, modernist dream uh, of embracing this absolute view and basically of western civilization, the problem with this view is that genocide follows, colonialism follows. Uh, you end up by imposing in some way, okay, uh, a value that perhaps a lot of people do not want to have. Now, it's very important, and this is really my last point, is that, well, there are different levels of truth. If I I tell you right now that there is a library behind me, of course, we all agree that there is a library behind me. But that, from a theoretical, even an ontological point of view, it's very poor. I mean, it's not a great statement. Uh, If I tell you that it's a beautiful library, well, you might disagree. And if I tell you what books I have, you might totally disagree. So here, it's a question that we have to really take into consideration that there is no neutral language that we can all use. There are several languages upon which we should have what I prefer to call a conversation rather than a dialogue, right? A dialogue is something that Plato did ending up by taking the slave from the cave. A conversation is something more weak that you don't really know where it's going to end.
2: Thanks very much uh, indeed, uh, Santiago. And don't worry, we will be coming back to you. But, Colin, I think we seem to be moving in a direction where we're looking at what's true and making that perhaps a subset of, of of what's right, do you have yourself a set of, I mean, to use a dangerous word these days, objective standards about how we can actually define what is true? Is is that something we can meaningfully say? Can you meaningfully say it? Um, yeah, I think
4: I, I, surprisingly, I think it is something we can mean, meaningfully say, and I think you know both um, Santiago and Sacravati are going to agree. You know, to be uh, claim or theory to be true, uh, then it's just going to be something about, you know, correctly describing uh, what it's aiming to describe or uh, what it's talking about. Um, obviously, you know, I, I take your point about being true and being right, and, and there's a one way to understand being right as being correct, and that sort of connects up with true, and that there's one way of being right, which is more, um, uh, has to do with other, Kinds of norms and perhaps you know, has an ethical dimension, which is different. I took it that the debate was about the, the first uh, uh, notion. Um, I'd like to react to one thing Santiago said, and also one thing that already said. If that's okay. Um, so I, I do agree with Santiago that um, truth. You know, if you if you think of a theory like anthropogenic climate change, you know, um, it's a very complex thing, a theory, and. And truth uh, is not everything. I agree with him that truth is not everything. I mean, I, you know, uh, y- there are issues to do with, you know, establishing the truth or ha- arguing for the truth, having the right institutions that enable you to do that. And then et, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but true, ha- I mean, sometimes, you know, I mean, we should slide between saying truth is not everything and truth is not, does not matter or is not the aim of um, the theory, or something like that. I mean, it might be the case that you know, um, truth is not everything, but that doesn't mean that it's kind of nothing, or that you know, uh, truth is not actually the key thing that is operating in us. Looking for 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 theories. Um, so, I think we, you know, uh, I, I'd like to hear more about about that. Um, I was interested by uh, by what's. So, i said about incompatible truths and and the, the the possibility of there being, uh, you know, often we presuppose that there is just one truth out there, and you know, it's a matter of finding it. And and then you know, perhaps that, you know, uh, 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 there are several truths, and and they, you know, they could they can't all be true. Um, I think I would be reluctant to sort of think of that as um as something that has to be, you know taken to hold across the board. Uh, I think, you know, you might, you know, he he was interested in talking of religious theories or or religious views, that's one thing, you know, maybe science is another thing. So I think we can, you know, uh, uh, perhaps agree that there are areas where the idea of a unique truth is, you know, has to be revisited or perhaps massaged in some way, but uh, we shouldn't think that because that's the case in all areas uh, uh, and, and, Uh, Especially in areas where we might have better claims to to think that is just a unique way the world is, then then we should give up on on there being a unique uh, uh, type of truth. But but it's true that, you know, we, there might be contexts in which
5: that's different. If, yeah. Ram, come on in. If I may come in on that. So yes, that's exactly what I mean when I said that, you know, we have to move away from a monotonic notion of truth. That is to say that perhaps uh, using, for example, Stephen Jay Gould's idea of, uh, you know, magisteria, what we are can you just there.
2: explain that idea briefly, uh, Ram? Sure. Where people may not sure. know what it is.
5: Yes, of course. I was just coming to that. Yeah. So the idea that Stephen Jay Gould was trying to say, how is it that you could have um, religious lives, which are coherent and grounded and driven by particular claims about knowledge, which have no bearing on, or in the case of creationism, perhaps uh, come up against, uh, the theories of evolution and he was interested also in the fact that many uh, religious traditions in the world had no problems with evolution and yet of course they were not concerned with finding out about you know dinosaurs and the Vedas. So how does that happen? He said well there are magisteria by which he meant there are authoritative domains of discourse in which the truth is relative to the purposes of why that discourse has evolved and the direction towards which that discourse drives. So it's not so much that they are clashing with each other as that they have different purposes and therefore it's possible to think about say, liberation from the suffering of life if you're a Buddhist while also saying, we know pretty much why The dinosaurs were wiped out at the end of the Cretaceous. These are things that you might say, well was the Buddha talking about the suffering of the dinosaurs at that point, if, if all life is suffering? For him that would become a meaningless kind of question to ask. So you work within these different domains and what constitutes the truth in those domains would be Consistent and relevant with the purposes of that debate. I think our problem comes when we do not have that kind of clash. I suppose with climate change, one would say that, but also with, I think, larger theories of the human good. What do we aim for? If there are things where uh, you're actually claiming that you are on the same turf, then we start having the question whether there are. irreducible incompatibles, or whether it is simply the case that one is right and the other is wrong, even though we have no explanation whatsoever apart from a persistent evolutionary capacity for human beings to perhaps live with falsehoods, to say why is it, or explain why is it that if there is such clarity about um, a, a commitment to there being a type of truth, we seem to find it so damn difficult to arrive at them.
2: Well, first, Ram, I suppose that uh, Wittgenstein might have said that if a dinosaur could speak, would we understand what it had to say to us? But second, that ethical dimension is exactly where I'd like us to take the debate next. And I'm going to interject at this point, if I may, a quote from a man who may have known his philosophy, but was not, I think, known for his compromise with his own idea of truth. And yet, in this particular statement, he did offer some. It was Oliver Cromwell, the well-known parliamentarian, and uh, I have to say, uh, not not a man very popular in Ireland, amongst other uh, other places, but uh, certainly with his own views of the world. And he once said to his opponent, I beseech thee in the bowels of Christ to think that you may be mistaken. In other words, that sometimes accepting the impossibility of being right might lead to a new age of compromise and understanding. And we're going to spend a little time, I think, now delving more into that ethical side, which we touched on, but I think could come a little uh, uh, a little further, because one of the things that's very notable about the present moment is that simultaneously we seem to be living in a world of fake news, alternative facts, and all these phrases where reality seems to be very, very difficult to define, and yet very large numbers of people in the public square seem absolutely convinced, not only that they're right in a moral sense, but what they say is objectively true and cannot be disputed. Santiago, you have written a book which uh, deals with the age of, uh, of fake news, alternative facts and related issues. Could I turn to you on this and ask, is there a sense in which if we do accept one of your premises, that it's impossible to be right in an objective sense, we might reach an age not of confrontation, but of compromise? Is that a realistic possibility?
3: I think we will reach compromise if we all agree on the historical contingencies of our interpretation, statement, description, etc. I think that that's one of the first uh, important. um, uh, Well, let me just say something, because the idea that well, Santiago or by that Dewey and Rorty and Levinas and a lot of this, there is a very long tradition of philosophers who are who discarded truth or think that there are more important things than truth. In other words, that like Lloyd used to say, if you take care of freedom, truth will take care of itself. And the same works for ethics and so forth. But um, the idea is that, I, I like to always make this example with the whistleblowers, uh, Snowden, Assange, and Willie, and so many other whistleblowers that have shown us the truth, right? Uh, in this, in, you know, the, the actual truth with documents and nothing had changed so the, the the power of that objectivity there again it has a lot to do with our with whether what happens with our communication what happened with our society what sort of discourse we actually have now uh this is why when i the, the idea of alternative alternative facts it, you know we have to remember we always had alternative facts this is not something new uh, we we always had alternative facts and now of course we have a very big crisis due to of course social media and internet and everything involving that, that basically are traditional vectors of legitimation from great newspapers to university, to experts, et cetera, has in some way lost any authority it had. Uh, the question is, how do we regain that authority? This is a very important issue, I think. Um, because all for you, for you, or maybe some of our, our listeners are thinking, oh God, another postmodern philosopher. But what does postmodern mean? Because a lot of people, unfortunately, now recently, like it often happens, you know, they forget what postmodernity really means. And I have here the definition because I come prepared this morning. But is so, this the only
2: true objective definition of postmodernism, Santiago? There are no alternative uh, alternative versions.
3: <laughs> well, let me recall. Let me recall um, that um, it's crucial to recall the so-called chaos. Okay, so I bring chaos. The so-called chaos brought about by the meta-narrative to post-modernity, we did, it did not aim, okay, did not aim to create a new order, but to avoid the external imposition of an order. So the idea of post-modern philosophy is to make sure that no big order, like a dictatorship, okay, uh, or a unique, unique medium, comes on you. That you recognize the contingency and also the democratic plurality of the different. Uh, nationalities yeah, and um,
2: Santiago, come on. A democracy is also a form of order as well. By defining order as dictatorship, you're setting your own terms. Isn't exactly where the center of the debate is. You're putting forward your idea of what you think is the true and right definition okay. through a
3: postmodern so, lens. Let's put it this way. So, according to you, instead, we should basically be left at the let, leave all, all, the, all the experts, all the experts in economy, for example, dictate how the economy should work. So basically do what the European Union tell us to do. And I think that some countries don't like that. So
2: You, you no. now sound like the British politician Michael Gove, Santiago, which was not a sentence I thought I would ever say to a Spanish philosopher. Uh, who's well, very, I'm not, not
3: Spanish. I'm not Go Spanish, ahead. but anyway. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, Go ahead. Anyway, uh, to sum up what I wanted to say, it's basically um, uh, to, you mentioned a, a moral philosopher at the beginning, and I think it's a good idea here to quote Levinas. Levinas, uh, he, he, he points out that ethics, right? You mentioned ethics at the beginning. so. Ethics arises only by listening and responding to the request for help that the other addresses to me, not from any rational awareness of what is right and wrong.
2: Thanks very much indeed, Santiago. I will get on the internet in a moment and order you um, a special I Love Brexit t-shirt, which you can wear for the next debate. But meanwhile, I will turn to Corinne and ask, Mm -hmm. you know, the center of what Santiago is actually arguing very persuasively, I think, is the idea that we can become caught up in an idea of a constructed rightness and objectivity to do with a notion of expertise, whether it's the economics of the European Union, which Spain, of course, has very good reason because of the Eurozone not to be so keen on, or indeed whether it's the way in which climate change is used in the minds of some to make particular sorts of policy prescriptions, which in the end are political decisions, not purely objective decisions, you know, don't you think that that is a sign that we need to be cautious about using these terms? Cautious about
4: using the term being right?
2: Yeah, about this this idea of rightness and object. Oh, yeah. I mean,
4: obviously, you know, it, it is immensely, you know, it's it's. I mean, just you know, listening to the three of us, you know, it, 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 we already have come up with, you know, an extremely diverse answers, and 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 mm-hmm. and we uh, uh, agree that you know, having a good theory of what it would mean for anything to be right is going to be incredibly com- complex, and also. The problem that once you know certain Jews have are validated to be right,
2: right. And so but let, me, let, let, let me sharpen the question if I may in that case you're, you're right to pick up on that what I understood Santiago to be saying I can come back to him in a second to, to see if I if I'm representing correctly but by putting forward a postmodern position essentially one is breaking apart the idea at some level of any of the grand narratives and one can argue that a sort of idea of, of, of objective reality is part of that is useful at all. You are not taking that position, I think. No, I'm not mind.
4: taking that position. And I think, I think, you know, actually that position is not stable. Okay. So and 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 deeply and, and fundamentally uh problematic. So you know you 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 tell me look um I've just come to terms with the view that it's impossible to be right about uh, anything. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm making your point then, you know, the point you just made to Santiago, well, you know, are you right about this? Well, you know, you better not say yes, because then that's, that defeats the point you've just made. Uh, and you better not say no, because uh, then you would admit to being wrong. So these, these claims that, you know, you can't be right about anything whatsoever, they, they, they're just not completely coherent, you know, and, and, and I don't think, you know, we we can, you know, without contradicting ourselves, really hold on to this, you know, there are areas where we might give up the possibility of being right, but, you know, to operate rationally, we have to operate with the idea that we can be right about uh, uh, something. And also the idea that somehow there is, there would be a a kind of value or moral or, or otherwise to abandoning this ambition, you know, to. For, for, for truth and 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 um, and and I, you know, agree that you know it's impossible to be right about uh, anything. I mean, um, you know, I don't, I don't see that it would increase consensus or increase agreement or you know. I mean, in, 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 there is no fact of the matter about you know a, an issue. You and I are not going to agree more over that issue. But we're not just not. going to stick to our guns. You know, we're just going to um, become even more radical about obvious. I don't see why that would be conducive to more. Ag- Agreement.
2: Okay, Corinne. Uh, could I bring um, Santiago straight back in first? So I know he wants to come right back on this and I'll come to Ram. Santiago.
3: Very quickly, um, I actually I actually want to agree with Corinne because the idea of hermeneutics in general is that, for example, let's take uh, uh, something from the past. Let's take the, the genocide in Rwanda, okay? There's no doubt about it. I, I know a lot about it because my dad works in the United Nations. Anyway, it's a fact. It happened. Uh, but as a hermeneutic philosopher, in particular in this age of alternative facts and everything going on through social media, it's my interest that we have, let's imagine uh, a history of what happened, come out every year from a good university press. I want to sustain that fact as much as possible uh, in order to make it clear that we are, that it's true and that it's right and that people continue to know that. It, that's why, and, this, and right, I'm, I'm done right after this, Gadamer, Hans georg Gadamer, German philosopher, he insisted very much on this notion that what makes, and this works also for a historical example I just made, but what makes a classic like Shakespeare or Waking Bad, a good series? Well, what makes a classic is the consequences it has, the fact that we continue to listen to it, we continue to interpret it, basically, and we continue to keep it alive in some way. This is what I mean by, you know, bringing into new interpretations to sustain even more a historical fact that it's particularly important. If we cease to talk about Rwanda, we might have fake news coming up uh, very quickly right away. That's basically my point. So we actually don't, we actually agree, okay? Very good indeed. Ram, I don't know if you want to come in on this.
2: I I
5: just want to say that one of the things I think um,
2: people, whether
5: philosophers or not, we find always difficult, I think, to um, always tell apart uh, and, perhaps it cannot be, is the difference between uh, a commitment to a notion of what is true, uh, or indeed uh, a notion of what truth ought to consist in, uh, or does consist in, and the processes by which we either arrive at it or derive from it certain kinds of uh, you know, uh, evidential and persuasive uh, arguments for its defense. Um, Because when, it it might depend a lot on what you come, you know, what's the process by which you come to it. So they go back to the question of say, um, you know, the the postmodern concern looks absolutely justified that you're going to end up with um, uniform, authoritarian uh, forms, modes of existence if you're committed to the truth uh, or the notion of a truth and and, and you worry about it, say, as as Popper did, then we'd say, well, yes, but surely you do actually want uh, more or less everybody in the world to accept um, the problems of climate change and for all of us, really, to cohere around a particular set of practices. You don't overfish or you don't drive long distances and you don't, you know, you start moving towards sustainable energy sources would that be a problem that in fact we have actually a sort of global order derived from the truth? So I think that any overarching theory that moves away from what it is that the truth is that we are aiming for and what it is that we are arguing out of that truth from is forgotten for the sake of a commitment to overarching positions about truth and its possibilities.
2: Thanks indeed, uh, Ram. What I'd like us to do is to just to think a little bit about how these questions we've been debating might look in the near future and then in the period perhaps even beyond that. In other words, how can we usefully use this? Discussion uh, or the, the the premises of the discussion to uh, move forward at a time when I think it's fair to say, if we're talking about you know why we're having this in the first place, we're in an era when ideas ideas of objectivity, ideas of facts, ideas of truth are coming under immense assault. And I want to turn back to you, Santiago may partly because you know I I know that you have been thinking about the, sort of the fake news question in 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 some in some depth. Is part of the problem? That we have so much, we know so much more. We have so much more data these days that actually it's going to be harder, not easier, to actually define what is right. Uh, so, be harder to define what is what is right and true. And in that sense, we, you know, we we have the problem of abundance, so to speak. And in some sense, that's not going to go away because the only thing I think we can be sure of in the near future is that big data is going to keep getting bigger. To you.
3: I totally agree and you, you actually explain why the Democratic Party did not choose uh, Elizabeth Warren to run as vice president because she wanted to break down the big social network. So um, that's a problem. We have an amount of information or amount of data, but I should add uh, bad information, bad data, because you know the, the information we, we get in The Guardian or in Le Monde is very different from even the tweets that come out from Le Monde and The Guardian. So Uh, I think that here is a question again of, um, well, why why is interpretation, why is it so important to learn to interpret properly? Um, And by properly, I do not mean in the right form, but in in such a way that it's productive in some way. Uh, Hormonautics has a very long history, well, it starts from Aristotle, but also it has a long tradition of biblical homonautics and juridical homonautics. In other words, we have to learn in some way uh, how to interpret the text. And these texts are interpreted through what? Through other texts, basically. In other words, so I, as a hermetic philosopher, for example, let's imagine uh, I'm not a Catholic, but, you know, there's a Catholic country. Would the Bible have survived without an institution like the church? Well, probably not. Uh, and so the institution that we do still have, uh, and let's hope they will, they will still stay alive, those are the ones that I think that can help conserve that, that, uh, that truth, that, are some of our traditional texts, but also science uh, maintained because, and this is my last point, uh, we should also, I mean, I am a big fan of Greta Thunberg. I'm sure a lot of people are, but how come that Greta Thunberg managed to uh, attract so much more, many more people than, than so many scientists, like Hansen, for example? Well, it's a question of intensity, of, intensity, of the intensity of the communication she, she managed to get. Maybe that's one way we can have overcome uh, the problem we have that you lay out on uh, on data and bad information.
2: An intriguing question uh, there, although of course that has to do with also not just the nature of, of facts, if, if there are such things, but how they, they get presented as, uh, as well. But I want to stick with this question, as I say, moving us in terms of where what we might see in the next few years and decades even. Corinne, to this question of whether or not the problem is not lack of data, lack of objective Reality as we can measure it and see it and store it up and put it in in bar charts, but the fact that we are now in a position where there's so much of it that it can yes. fulfil any interpretation that people of goodwill or ill will want to place upon it.
4: Just to pick up, you know, I think I wanted to get a question, and and no. I mean, I think you're right, and I think you know Santiago, is, you know, is right. Like, you know, one problem is that there is so much bad information, and it's just. Um, uh, you know very difficult to tell apart the good information from the bad one you know and for me i guess the key um the key to finding solutions to the predicament we find ourselves in of the fake news and the and and the being overwhelmed by data and all that is is you know trying to sort of go back to our you know um reflective abilities to, to to provide reasons and to look for reasons for views and 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 you know we, we are very much you know, also in an emotional politics where you know I f- I feel like this so you know this is my view and I'm not going to um, scrutinize it so uh, you know I think rationality and bringing back uh, 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 a focus on providing good reasons is going to be part and I don't know exactly how we might do that you know we might need charismatic people like Reta to who actually, you know, makes very good arguments. And, and I think people listen to actually what, you know, what her arguments are, not just, you know, to the sunbites as it were. Um, so we might need some charismatic people to emerge to, who can, and, and you know, or maybe it, it might be through, you know, education, um, but it's true that we have to place rationality uh, back into the conversation because only that, only, you know, thinking about this huge amount of data that we're receiving is going to help us sorting out the good from the bad.
2: Thanks very much indeed, Corinne. Um, Ram, sorry, I was going to bring you in, but let me me throw that that to you.
5: For me, um, all of the contestation about facts, whether we are uh, arguing uh, with certainty about what we believe in, or whether we are arguing towards something that we admit we don't know yet about, what we are missing in today's world is sufficient focus on the political processes by which the sort of the global epistemology of data and debates happens. So it's not so much, for example, um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has just died. Now the point is not so much about whether we are right or wrong uh, in terms of the views that liberal and conservative justices of the American Supreme Court hold. It's rather whether it's right for an out, a president coming up to an uh, election to try and ram through an appointment through the Senate, which belongs to his party. It's that process that we need to pay much more attention to. And of course, it's not that it's not happening, but the greater Thunbergs of the world mobilize in a particular kind of emotion of ethics, But we still need the global um, institutions to work. We need to challenge the possibility that global institutions may not work. It's the processes,
2: I think, that we are not paying enough attention to. Can I press you on that in particular then, Ram? Because I think this is where some of the sort of divergence in our definitions of of what's right and what is true become a bit problematic. I mean, we were talking earlier about things, uh, climate change being, you know, the fact that temperatures are changing across the planet, they are melting ice caps, you know, all the things that you can prove with uh, a meter, uh, or, you know, a thermometer, or uh, um, scientific equipment is, is the case. In the case of the Supreme Court battle you're talking about and the processes behind that, in the end, those are narratives that are created by societies that call themselves democracies or authoritarian states or whatever else it might be but surely in that sense there can't be anything that's right or objectively true i mean one of the complaints that authoritarian states have about democracies is that democracies always say that they're right and one of the things that china has been doing in recent uh uh years has been arguing we're big we're strong we're stable we have a model that isn't democratic and this is right not least for us but maybe for other people as well but that kind of rightness or truth is not the same as the climate change truth, is it? Yes, so what what I'm trying to say is that this is exactly,
5: going back to my very first point, that we cannot simultaneously both be absolutely certain that there are truths and at the same time uh, be baffled as to why uh, there is so little agreement on those truths. How is it that it's possible as humanity in in terms of our own evolution? How is it that a very, very small section of the population, say 1% of the population has a particular truth that because they are highly qualified quantum theorists, they understand and everybody else thinks isn't the case. It can't be the case that we are both, we have evolved as creatures, both capable of intransigence difference and a commitment to truth. So the best thing I would say is to defer the question of whether we are converging on truths at all times in all places or whether there are no such truths at all and concentrate on the institutional processes by which that epistemology can be sort of substantiated. It's an extremely open-ended Highly optimistic goal, but hey, we have not been any better. Thinking we can arrive at the truth, so why not spend a little bit more time thinking about how we might act towards the truth, whether it's there or not? Okay, Corin. Yeah, I'm,
4: that's interesting. I I'm not sure I really see the the paradox there, if you wish, because um, so that has occurred a few times. The conversation, you know, how come we can never arrive, you know, at any kind of consensus around anything, if, you know, if there are these truths out there that are just demand to be discovered. I mean, we, you know, that, as Santiago said at the beginning, there are lots of boring truths we agree on, you know. Uh, the more complicated truths are just complicated. And 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 so, you know, um, having this sort of dichotomy, you know, and, you know or this opposition aiming at the truth and not succeeding at finding the truth and, um, you know, disagreement, I mean, we are making. I mean, many of us take ourselves to making to that we're making right. immense progress. I mean, like, you know. I mean, look at the development of physics. You know, and physics is probably. I mean, it's so hard that there's no surprise that it is extremely hard to find answers. I mean, from but, that perspective, it's, it's no, it's no surprise that you know we haven't final answers. We don't. We don't. We have. We don't have final agreement. These questions are probably the, you know the big questions. They are the hardest, and, and we should expect that somehow, you know, uh, a few centuries of thinking about them is going to provide answers, you know. Sure. A few so, is going to get us closer,
5: but I don't yeah, know. So sorry, this That's... is my point exactly, because my, I would then oh. say that in the matter of physics, we have had processes develop relatively recently in human history, which have been more um, sort of effective. And therefore, we are we are able to substantiate the sense of arriving at truths better than we have with other institutions. Perhaps okay. we will be able to do it in the next couple of centuries with climate change. Perhaps it might be too late, or we might fail to do so. For example, with uh, religious divergences, where we we have to we are we are trying to find different ways of living with multiple truths. So that's my point. I agree. I think we are in agreement. I'm simply saying that what we need at all the times both with our failures and with our successes, to remember is that the processes, the the institutions through which our epistemological processes are pursued have to be stable enough for us to have a chance of even finding out whether there are truths to converge to or whether they are not.
2: Well, I'm afraid one thing that I think is objectively and rationally true is that we are coming up to the end of our assigned time here today. Thank you all for joining us.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, iii.tv, for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.
0: Look around. You can find cars like these on Autotrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars